Welcome to Religious Studies News. I'm your host, Christian Peterson, and today I'm here with Willis Jenkins, Associate Professor of Religion, Ethics, and Environment at University of Virginia, and the winner of the AAR Book Award in Constructive Reflective Studies. He's here to speak to us today about his book, The Future of Ethics, Sustainability, Social Justice, and Religious Creativity, which was published with Georgetown University Press in 2013. Congratulations, Willis, and thanks for joining me. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Now, your, your first book, Ecologies of Grace, uh, explores theology and environmental ethics. And in The Future of Ethics, you tell us you set out to write a book on how to apply the theory to practice. Can you tell us about the book you set out to write and how the process of writing transformed your thinking? So where, where did you end up with The Future of Ethics? Yeah, great question. Um, so I think the first thing to say is that um, the title can seem uh, outlandish, but I don't mean it in the outlandish sense. I mean it in the sort of modest prospective sense. Um, I'm not at all offering a, a blueprint of well, what ethics should be or where it is definitely going, but uh, rather the processes by which ethics is constantly being uh, reconstructed. Uh, when I, you're right, when I set out to, to write a book on sustainability, I thought it was about um, applying the, the foundation that I had worked out for myself in a first book. But um, over the years of writing this book, I came to find myself rethinking the total metaphor of applied, as if ethics is something in which you work out a fundamental theory and then apply it to some specific arena. Uh, I was teaching in a in a position of um, I was teaching in a social ethics position at, at Yale Divinity School, and um, and and found that um, I assumed, and I think most people around me assume that what social ethics does is take whatever the given moral theory is, maybe it's Christian theology in a divinity school, and 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 work on um, sort of rather straightforwardly running it through some application or algorithm to apply it to specific problems. And but I came to think that. Doing ethics that way um, discounts the challenge of the problems and the force that those problems can have back on you know one's fundamental theory. So really, this book is about me um, trying to figure out a new way to do my job um, in a way that seemed, I guess, more adequate to the kinds of challenges that I wanted to teach. You tell us you're responding to what you call unprecedented uh, hybrid problems of planetary de degradation and social injustice. How do you see the state of the world? What is the role of human power here? Can you tell us what some of the challenges we're facing that are unprecedented? Yeah. Uh, so the Anthropocene is a is a is a it's a heading, I suppose, for this new time of of human history in which human influence has become so pervasive through ecological systems that any division between the human and natural world is is untenable uh, and at the same time that influences um, leading to uh, a number of challenges of uncertainty and instability and in, in basic life support systems of, of the planet which is not to say that um, there's a, a straightforward definite emergency that can be solved in some straightforward sense but but rather that the Anthropocene stands for a time of Earth's history in which the human species 
is in a condition of acknowledged responsibility for how many different form, uh, life systems and, and, and forms uh, function. Um, and that's, that is remarkable and unprecedented. Um, it's not unprecedented that uh, one species or, or, a, or a small collection of species would reshape life over the planet. But it is unprecedented that uh, a moral species would do it, one that can recognize that it's doing so as it happens. And um, what impresses me about that for the doing of ethics is that there, there are no moral traditions that anticipate that kind of challenge. And so that's what I mean by the un unprecedented challenges. Something like, something like climate change is not the kind of problem that any of our moral traditions, secular or religious, are designed to respond to. Uh, and so it exerts a great amount of pressure on our traditions, or our whatever we have, to think through problems. Um, and it exerts pressure to, um, to find ways to be adequate to that, to that problem. Carry on this idea of, uh, of our moral inheritances and, and how traditions can respond to contemporary problems. How do you envision the relationship between communities and tradition? What tools does tradition provide for contemporary moral creativity uh, in, in structuring pattern ethics for today? Yeah. Um, so, you know, this is another good question. Uh, in, in writing the book, I came to think also that uh, there's, there's been, uh, at, least, at least in contemporary Christian ethics, uh, too tight a connection between the idea of a tradition and the notion of a cultural worldview and actual human behavior. So that's to say I, I needed to rethink the relationship between tradition, worldview, and practices. Uh, and what I wanted to aim for is something in which pra improvisational practices, tentative practices, inadequate practices can um, exert pressure back on the the what I came to call cultural inheritances that the agents or the communities are, are using to interpret and think through their problems. But doing that meant that I had to um, explain what I think about the idea of a worldview is inadequate as a cultural theory and is inadequate as a model for religious ethics. Um, and I think I can best uh, explain it briefly by saying, by saying this. Um, if, if climate change is the symptom of a, of a worldview that is in error or dysfunctional, then the, the route to addressing it is one of incredible cultural depth. It means that one must convert all persons to adopt a new, more adequate worldview, which is a, an exceptionally broad global task and also one that goes so deep into the, you know, the meta-ethical sediments of a person's consciousness that um, I'm afraid it's a council of of despair to say that that's how we have to approach climate change to to or any other kind of big problem like that is to um, repair the worldviews that actual persons have. Um, so that was that's that was motivational impulse to wonder whether worldviews are the most adequate way of thinking about how persons draw on the resources they have to think about problems. Um, and um, uh, reading people like. Um, Pierre Bourdieu and, and Anne Swidler, I came to a more um, problem-based, um, practice-focused, and um, um, I, I ended up using the, the metaphor of inheritances a great deal. As that persons have available to them sort of a set 
stock of repertories, uh, repertories of practice from their from their cultures. Um, some of these are tightly honed by their particular religious communities. Some of them are giving expression to their background traditions. Um, but people don't have to necessarily tightly integrate these into a coherent and ideal picture before they go to act. And it's probably that only really happens in academic seminar rooms. Um, so, um, long story short, I um, came to adopt a theology of culture that would support that kind of way of, of approaching a, a religious ethic, one that thinks about how um, problems push persons and communities to use the tools in their repertory in new ways, and by doing so, uh, reshape the background traditions that they take themselves to be part of. What you're doing, I think, is is innovative, and you're you're challenging other ethicists to uh, approach problems in new ways. So, for for listeners who aren't familiar with these contexts, could you kind of flesh out how this is different from how others might approach social ethics? Right. Um, so this this approach is, um, I suppose it's it's controversial in in my um, little subfields. Um, so. In addition to departing from the applied model of social ethics, uh, within my uh, field of religion and ecology, um, I would say that it has been um, largely shaped by an, uh, an approach that focuses on the background cosmologies that different traditions have regarding the uh, appropriate human nature relation or, or the actual human nature relation in the tradition that needs to be reshaped. And so there's a, there's a great deal of, of, of really wonderful work from many different um, religious traditions and, and, and just popular culture investigating um, background worldviews and, and exploring possibilities for constructing new kinds of cosmologies that might uh, help us inhabit, you know, this time of, of unprecedented planetary challenges. Um, and so, for the reasons I've just I've just indicated, I, I came to argue that that this that my field should adopt a, a more um, a problem-based approach. Now, part of the reason for that is that I found that um, religious analyses weren't obviously making a difference to the literature of research about problems like climate change or environmental justice, and I think it's because we have removed ourselves um, to uh, this kind of meta-ethical cosmological level where we're constantly aloof or abstract from the empirical world. Um, and um, I'm, I'm worried about that not only because it, it, you know, it makes religious analyses less relevant, but also because it seems to um, insulate our own scholarship, our inquiry, from uh, the kinds of challenges that might be issued uh, to our work from, from how other disciplines are thinking through problems. And so a lot of this book is, is undertaking conversation with um, uh, disciplines that are, are engaging problems like climate change or environmental justice and impoverishment. And um, first of all, very carefully listening and then trying to show the specific places that uh, religious inquiry could possibly uh, make a difference to how those conversations are being conducted. And you get to really flesh this out in the in the later chapters, where you examine particular discursive sites related to, to social justice and sustainability. I think you call them pragmatist experiments somewhere. 
why did you choose to respond to these particular challenges? And what are you, what are you trying to, to show in these chapters? The book opens uh, with a chapter on climate change. And, um, and, and the point of that is not to say, as, as books in religious ethics and especially in Christian eco-theology often do open, with a catalog of woe, you know, like this, look how terrible the world is and this is what we must respond to, but rather to show um, the complexity and the difficulty and the uncertainties um, and the, you know, just the interpretive um, wildness of this problem in order to underscore that it's not at all obvious how religious ethics would make a difference to it. And then in later chapters, I want to show how, um, where there is some discrete uh, community that is using their inheritance in some new, unexpected way to respond to the problem, that there lies real potential for, for exploring that, that what's going on, you know, how people are using their traditions in new ways, how people are deploying their inheritances in ways that might make a difference to a particular problem. Um, that there's real potential there for both for religious studies to think about the future of these traditions, but also for the conversations that are happening around that specific problem. And so to take an example, um, I, I have a, a chapter on, um, on chemicals and, and toxins, and that engages with the environmental justice movement in, in North America. Um, although the environmental justice movement in North America is broadly celebrated, being very important, um, I think it is rarely taken seriously within religious studies and especially within ethics as being a site of real uh, moral creativity. Um, and I try to show how what's going what's going on here are um, deployments of rights concepts often forged um, in um, in previous civil rights struggles to. Um, a new site of the political circulations of power. And as that happens, these rights concepts are made to interpret the flow of political power and especially the flow of political injustice through ecological flows. And as that happens, they begin to um, implicitly expand and, and reinterpret the moral anthropology behind those rights concepts. So there's a lot going on there, and I'm afraid that they haven't gotten the the attention that they should. And I think they haven't gotten the attention they should, both in religious ethics and also in environmental ethics. Um, so environmental ethics, uh, that field, uh, the philosophical field of environmental ethics, uh, has seen a similar kind of, of move for a, a more pragmatic approach is based on a similar kind of critique of the, of the discipline that it's been too ontological, too focused on value theories, ignores real problems. Um, and they want something that's more focused on actual uh, problems faced by real communities that are using their uh, whatever uh, political and moral tools they have to face them. But what's interesting about the environmental pragmatists is that they completely ignore uh, religious practices, which lots of people in North America are going to use to interpret the problems of their communities. And they're, they're pretty naive about, um, about power, about how, uh, about how the framing of problems can be captured by mainstream interests. But what well, environmental justice movements are great because they involve um, all kinds of religious institutions and religious ideas and practices and they're also not at all naive about power but they're confronting it um, rather straightforwardly. And so here's a site in which there's something interesting happening and I'm the methodological point is pay attention there's something interesting here. And and the more specific point for in for that discussion is look at what's going on with the background moral anthropology um, I think it's very interesting both for rights concepts um, and for the theory of environmental justice, but also for um, uh, 
religious inquiries and theological inquiries more, more broadly. You have another really interesting chapter on intergenerational justice. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about how should we begin the conversation of thinking about the future generations? How can we use your method? Yeah, well, that's the, that's the last chapter of the book. And it's there that that, ch <laughs> that chapter begins to illustrate um, really the limits of my experiment and, and the limits of a pragmatic method. I mean, I think here the, book, the book's method begins to break down, and, and that's sort of intentional. Um, I mean to show that um, there may be some challenges that are so overwhelming to our inheritances that we simply can't meet them. In other words, the future of ethics is not at all assured for any particular community. I mean, in this book, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about Christian inheritances and, and Christian ethics, but I think that the, the, the challenge works more broadly. Um, so, yeah, intergenerational issues, are, they're, they're just very, they're very perplexing. Um, they're perplexing because um, we, live in a, we live in a time in which we can forecast likely and possible implications of the expansion of human power through ecological systems over many iterations of, of generations. You can't do so with certainty, but you can do so with, with enough likelihood to bear responsibility for it, which just raises all sorts of really odd questions. I mean, how do we think about um, what we owe to the future, what we owe to the past? Should we think about that in, I mean, in one really basic one and one that's up for debate, um, is do, do we think about this in cyclical or linear ways? And there's, you know, indigenous peoples have been um, frustrated with the basic <laughs> linear temporality that well, Western ethics has brought to the question. Um, meanwhile, um, there's a uh, there's a lively discussion within economics, especially climate economics, over how to integrate uh, the possible political commitments that a, that a nation or a people might have to its future generations within market models that are that are attempting to bracket as much as possible political and moral commitments. You know, I think that that's something that's been, you know, that's not noticed. It looks like it's a kind of intramural debate over how to set a discount rate. You know, it's just math and equations. But actually, there's a, there's a hugely important discussion happening about the appropriate role for uh, communities and, and nations to decide on how they're going to honor their obligations to the future. Are they going to let the, their obligations be de facto set by the you know, activity of bond traders, or are, they going to have, are we going to have a broad discussion about what our commitments ought to be? And if we have the latter, then what does that discussion include? You know, what practices do we have to draw on to, uh, to find our, our implicit commitments or our, or our tools or inheritances of this language I've been using to think about practical obligations to future generations that would have some real bearing on something like what discount rate we use to set um, our evaluation of the cost of future catastrophes. You know, it makes a big difference to our everyday policies. Now, you, you've mentioned here in the conversation, and you, you definitely put this out there in the book, that, that we're working in a time of moral pluralism and cultural conflict very often. And while you're coming from a Christian social ethic, uh, you're inviting other participants from other moral traditions. So how do we construct a, a global ethic from, from many moral worlds? What are the challenges? What are the opportunities that you see with this type of approach? Right. So in the beginning of the book, um, I, I pick up Peter Singer's um, trope of one world, you know, um, because of globalization and, and um, 
and associated dynamics. Um, we live in a time of one world. You know, we need one global ethic. Um, and and I thought, and I was thinking about that at the same time that I was thinking about um, Bill Schweiker's trope of many moral worlds. That these exact same dynamics, the globalization dynamics, um, bring into conflict in new ways all the different moral worlds um, inhabiting the planet. So how do we think about living in a time of one world and many worlds? Uh, and, and basically, in in a chapter on, on global ethics. Um, I take a pretty strong stand against the view that you need to work that we should work out one universal worldview and persuade you know all peoples of the planet to adopt it, um, but uh, and, and rather suggest that we can uh, attempt to develop what I call crails of cooperation. You know these limited provisional um, lexicons of cooperation where people from different worlds recognize shared challenges and and work out ways to begin addressing them. Um, so it's, it's the, in, the entire frame of the book is, assumes um, not just a pluralist world, but a, a pluralist and, and provisional approach to, to these problems. And I would say then um, that the, the reason that I kept the analysis all the way through in terms of an argument within Christian ethics is that I wanted to show what it would look like for the argument with within working within one set of inheritances what that argument would look like when it assumes that it's interacting with um, a, a pluralist world of shared challenges so I want to show what the internal theological arguments might look like while bookmarking that the internal arguments for, of how to mobilize um, the tools that a tradition has will look different in other traditions but they'll accomplish something analogously similar they'll figure out ways to address the bedeviling features of, of new and, and, and unprecedented challenges. And then as they do, there should, there, there should be a productive conversation between different communities of moral practice, different traditions, as they begin to um, respond to these problems. Finally, Willis, uh, how do you imagine that others in the study of religion might benefit from your work? Well, I mean, so I'm, I'm trying to show the the productivity of a particularist and, and problem-based approach to thinking about how religion matters for social issues, um, and you know, I I'm I'm wagering that that will be productive in in a number of different contexts. But so you know, just just for example, um, um, I'm interested with in what's going on in uh, Bhutan with Buddhism and with its response to climate change. So here's Bhutan, it's a country that's a, a net carbon sink, um, and it's a country that is very intentional about how it um, uh, passes on its uh, interpretation of Buddhism, um, and it makes, um, you know, compelling proposals to the world scene. You know, it, famously, it wants to think about gross national happiness, right? So here's a here's a here's a country that is inventing concepts to think about challenges that are informed by its interpretation of a great religious tradition and as those concepts are used in the space of a new problem how it applies gross national happiness to climate change um, its interpretation of Buddhism implicitly changes along the way too so um, you know that's not something that's in the book but I mean that's the kind of thing that I think could be enormously productive for scholars to pursue yeah well thank you Willis congratulations on your book award and uh, it was a pleasure speaking with you thanks for the conversation